You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Finishing out series that we've been in, Deuteronomy 5, looking at the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to talk about the Eleventh Commandment today, um, but uh, wondering if you're wondering how I'm going to wrap this up, why are we doing an extra week, haven't we already done the Tenth Commandment? Um, we're going to go through the whole rest of the book of Deuteronomy this morning. Um, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of not. Um, and uh, all in due time to be able to come to the table together. A uh, wonderful way to respond to the Lord's word, uh, to his people, to come to the table together. Let me pray, and uh, let's ask the Lord to help us as we open his word together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, Lord, we give you praise this morning for uh, just the very fact that we can come before you together as a body um, and and worship you. Lord, thank you for your presence with us. We don't have to invite you because you're already here. You're already dwelling inside of us, those who have called on your name and faith. But Lord, we're so thankful that you're here. And Lord, I pray that you would move and work in the hearts of people this morning. Um, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit. Lord, some that may have hearts that need uh, broken. Some that may have hearts that need binded up and healed. Lord, you can do that perfectly and intimately and with complete wisdom. So please, Lord, I pray that you would work this morning. Glorify your son as we... Open your word together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have uh, looked at the Ten Commandments and uh, each time tried to understand a bit of uh, what did it mean as the Lord gave it to his people, Israel, and then let's flow all that through everything that's happened from this point all the way through the scriptures till now. What does it mean now for us that uh, Christ has come? What does it mean for us now because of the cross? What does it mean now for us as Christians? And Deuteronomy is helpful in the way in which it presents the Ten Commandments. As, as we've said each, each week, uh, this is the second time it's given. It's given 40 years after it's first given. It's a, packed into this sermon that Deuteronomy really is, that Moses is delivering to the people, reminding them of what God has already told them, reminding them of what God told their fathers, the previous generation, and, and emphasizing how this is for them. This is for the next generation. It's time for them to step up in obedience. It's time for them to hear God's word and to respond and to live it. And so each of the commandments uh, we 
said many times over, really can be summarized as Jesus summarizes them in loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. And each of them are packed in together underneath that and really form the uh, foundation of all the law that comes afterwards. So as you read the first five books of the Bible, particularly Exodus, uh, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and you look at the law, you see everything that's behind that, God is intending that to be all pointing towards the very call to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's pointing to something else, of course, even in the passage that Pastor read. It's leading towards something. It's heading towards something. We know what that something is. We know that it's none other than the coming of the Messiah, coming other, coming of Jesus Christ, um, to fulfill the law, to not get rid of the law, to not make the law obsolete, to not make the law un, not useful for us any longer, but to fulfill it, to complete it, so that we might have a perfect standard of righteousness before the Father, because he is uh, the righteousness of God, Jesus is. And so as we put our faith in him, we receive that perfect law-keeping righteousness, so that we don't have to live a life trying to earn righteousness of our own, which we cannot anyways. And so the Ten Commandments become helpful for us as Christians as we understand what pleases the Lord, what pleases my God and Father and Savior, what pleases Him. It's inherent, His heart, His character, His very nature is being revealed in His laws. He gives us, and we understand, what is God like? What does He expect? What is His standard? What does He value? What does He desire? What does He want? And as we pray and ask the Lord to help us to understand, Lord, help us to desire what, we, what You desire. Help us to do and value the things that You do and value. And he gives us his law that we might understand that. Not as a means to get in with him, because we know, as we've already heard, it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we become one with and in, uh, and in relationship with God. It's not through law-keeping. But now as we become sons and daughters of uh, the creator of the universe, we can now honor him and please him and live for him in a way that shows who we are by wanting to obey him. And Moses finishes out this chapter. Deuteronomy 5 is where we're at if you're not yet there. And I'm going to uh, just use the end of this chapter as sort of a uh, launching point for a few comments I have today to uh, close up this series. I've entitled it, and you've perhaps noticed it, and we've, I think, Pastor read it last week. Uh, the, The series has been called Such a Heart as This, and that comes out of one of the verses we're going to talk about today. And I've tried to emphasize, and not because I'm trying to show it or pull it out of Scripture, but it's very clearly there, God is after our hearts. He's after the deepest part of us, not our external performances, but the deepest part of what drives us, what motivates us, what makes us do whatever it is that we do. He's after our hearts, and he says as much in this passage we're going to read. Let me read it, and then we'll walk through it. Uh, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 22 is where we'll start. So as he's completed and finished the Ten Commandments, he begins, These words the Lord spoke to you, to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. 
And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. This is God's word. Moses is recounting for them what took place in chapters 19 and 20 of Exodus. And we sung about a couple of phrases, talked about, just the might of the Lord, the greatness of the Lord, the earth will shake. This took place when the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. He came down, it says in the midst of fire, but it's most literally in fire, in cloud, in thick darkness. And so we, we can't, I, and that's why I put a mountain uh, there for the, the picture, the image of on your bulletins. Can you imagine? Mountains are amazing enough. Can you imagine standing before a mountain and seeing it completely engulfed in fire, clouds, and thick darkness? It would be terrifying. And it's meant to give that very tone to the Israelites. They've just seen the Lord do amazing things, redeeming them and pulling them out of Egypt, out of the midst of slavery. And so Moses is recounting for them what took place. Because, see, Moses wants to make clear, as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's speaking to the people, he does not want to simply preach them a sermon where they say, now this is what the Lord told you to do, so make sure you do it. No, he wants to frame it up like a good preacher should and point to the character and nature of God himself. Because if you don't see God and you just hear a bunch of things that you're supposed to do, you haven't done the job. And so Moses sandwiches the Ten Commandments with, God, and then this is what he said. And so if we don't see and understand the greatness and majesty and power and might of God, and we just hear these are things we're supposed to do, it lacks the power that God is trying to convey in the fact that he comes down in fire, cloud, and darkness on a mountain to speak it. He didn't mail them all Gideon Bibles and say, do this. He came down and said, (laughs) Fire and cloud and thick darkness, and he speaks with a loud voice. And he wrote them himself on two tablets of stone. 
and gave them to me. Gave them to Moses. And as soon, Moses says, verse 23, as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And so all of the, the, the sort of the representatives of all the people, of their tribes and so on, come forth to Moses. In verse 24, and you said, this is what they said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, two things happen here. Number one, if, we, if you go back and read, we don't have the time to do it, but if you go back and read Exodus 19 and 20, you see that Moses, uh, not only is God speaking with Moses, but it's very likely that the people are hearing God speaking, at least portions of what we see in the Ten Commandments. So not only did did they see Moses hear God say things, but the people heard it. And so there's already an expectation for the people that if I hear God speak too much, I'm going to die. I can't can't take that. That We should file that away in the way in which we think about the Lord. Behold, we've seen... The Lord has shown us his glory and his greatness. We've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. And then they say, verse 25, Now therefore, why should we die? In other words, we don't, we don't want to hear this anymore. We, we, don't, we don't think we can take much more of this, Moses. Why should we die? This great fire will consume us. Remember in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, it talks about our God is a consuming fire. So much that you see throughout this as God comes in the first five books of the Bible, particularly around when he's giving the law, is there's always fire. God's going to consume everything with fire. The, so many of the offerings are consumed with fire. A great multitude of people who didn't obey him are consumed with fire, right? There's fire that will consume you. You're going to be burnt up. This great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there, verse 26, of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fires we've had and still live? So they're all in this is packed behind that. They're not just afraid. They're not just like, boy, I'm hearing all these things and I don't know that I live up to them, so I don't really want to hear it anymore. They're not just saying, I think this is how we're supposed to respond. They're not just saying, this is what religious people do, because they've never seen God come down in fire on a mountain before. But they know enough about the greatness and majesty of God that when he speaks, I can't hear it too much, because something is off with me. I don't measure up to who that is speaking. And if I hear it too much more, I'm going to die. That's their vision and view of God. And so there's this greatness. There's this majesty. There's this fear that they have in their understanding of God. And so they tell Moses, verse 27, Go near and hear all the Lord our God will say. And then speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we'll hear it and do it. They're telling Moses, go up. You, you, you hear the rest from, from God. We don't want to, we can't take it anymore. We can't, what if we die? What if he consumes us? And so they, they call Moses to be this mediator. God, of course, initially calls Moses to be the mediator. He's been all along, but they're wanting him to continue in that role. Moses, go, go, and, go and, and hear from the Lord and tell us everything the Lord tells, uh, tells you 
And we will hear it and do it. Remember, at the, look at the start of the chapter. What he told um, them initially as he begun, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear the statutes, the rules that I speak in your hearing. Uh, you shall learn them and be careful to do them. They're kind of packing all that in to say, you hear, you, you, you go hear what the Lord says, come tell us, and we will hear it and do it. We'll hear it from you, and we'll do it. We'll hear the rest from you, and we will do it. So they've done two things. They've acknowledged, number one, who God is. They've acknowledged the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God. They, they're seeing that clearly, and they're thinking rightly about who God is. Number two, they're saying, we're ready to obey. We'll hear it, and we'll do it. We're ready to hear what the Lord says, and we will do it. So they're prepared. Verse 28. And the Lord heard your words, Moses says. If you read Exodus 19 and 20, you see Moses going back and forth from the people to God. And you might be, uh, you might think that, well, is this like how it goes, you know, Moses goes, okay, I'm going to go tell God this, I'll be back, and runs up the mountain and tell God, hey, okay, do you want me to tell him that? All right, okay. And as if God doesn't hear. But that's all represented to be able to show the seriousness of the covenant that's taking place. There needs to be a messenger, a mediator that goes between God and man to express what God's intentions are, what God's plan is, what he's planning to do for them, the conditions, the stipulations, which is the law itself. And so Moses lets us in on what actually took place. Verse 28, the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. It wasn't as if I had to go back and tell him. The Lord heard you. Which is a good reminder that the Lord hears every word that we say. Every little, God, I promise I will X, Y, and Z if you just A, B, and C. Right? Every little thing, every little vow that we make, every little word that we speak, every little promise that we make, the Lord hears all of it. We know that, but we need to be reminded of that. He hears every little thing that we utter every little thing that we say, and he hears everything that we don't say, because he knows our hearts, he knows us far better than we know ourselves. The Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, verse 29, 28, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. What a great thing for God to say about something that we've said, that a person has said. Everything you said was right. For God to say that, right? They're right. Everything they said is right. Well, what are they right about? They're right in all that they have spoken. Is it just about we will hear and do it? That's part of it. They're ready to obey. But they're not, first of all, they're right in how, he's saying they're right in how they're seeing me. That they are worried about being consumed. That they are worried about dying if they hear me talk anymore. They're right in how they're perceiving me. They're right. They're right, secondly, in how they are responding to me. So they're not only just understanding rightly who God is and filing that away as a bit of information, but they're responding to that information about who God is, that revelation of himself. Because of who God is, I need to respond to him in a certain way. I need to fear him. I need to... I need to revere him. I need to be in awe of him. I need to be amazed by him. 
because of who he is. And so they're right in how they're seeing him. They're right in how they're responding to him. But they're also right in how they're wanting to obey him. We will hear and do it. They're right in all they have spoken, the Lord says. And this is, verse 29, this is God's, this is it's such a tender word from the Lord about how much he cares for his people. Look what he says, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. The Bible talks about the heart in all kinds of interesting ways, outside of just the physical heart. The heart is the... Uh, biblically is sort of a seat of emotions. It's the where emotions come from. It's where our devotions come from and what we're devoted to, what we're um, connected to in our minds and our thinking and our worship. And this is what God says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. Do you, do you hear the Lord's like desire for them and what they would desire and what they would want in what they would see rightly, in what they and how they would respond to him rightly. Oh, we don't talk like that. Oh, how much I love this dinner. Maybe you do. But oh is a particular type of grammatical thing. It's called a vocative. And it's meant to exclaim how it's it's a it's an exclamation. Oh that they had such a heart as this always. And we understand what this heart is. What? It's twofold. To fear me. That's where they've, they've spoken everything rightly. They, they fear me. They understand that God is a consuming fire. They understand that God is great. His, they've seen his glory, his greatness. They've heard his voice. They understand God rightly. They fear, to fear me, and secondly, to keep all my commandments. They want to hear everything that the Lord says to Moses, and they're ready to do it. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments. But there's a result of that. Not just, God is not just a brutal taskmaster who just wants his way. Because while that glorifies him, that people fear him and keep all his commandments... The rest of the verse tells us that there's something in it for the Israelites. God is not, he is concerned about his own glory, his own greatness, his own goodness, his own name being upheld, his own character and nature being upheld, but he's also concerned about his people. Why? Why should they? Why does he want this? That they would always fear me and keep all my commandments. That it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. The Lord knows and wants what is best for you. The Lord knows what's best for you when we don't always know. The Lord knows. He doesn't just know it, though. He wants it. He wants what is best for you. And so based on what he knows is best for you, that's what he wants for you. And so our task, our our searching is always going to find what is it that you know, Lord, that is best for me. I want that so that I can have that because that's what you want for me and you know what's best for me. And what breaks our hearts oftentimes, right, as we see people going the other direction from what 
we have learned to know what is best for us, what the Lord has told us in his word. Yesterday morning, uh, we had men's prayer. We have the, the third Saturday of every month, men, at uh, 8 o'clock here. And we prayed for several people, for salvation for several people, people in, in predicaments and situations that are not showing any signs of living for the Lord, and some are openly rejecting the Lord. And what is behind that is God's ultimate heart to say, I know what's best for you. And I want what's best for you. I don't just know it. I want that for you. And so when we pray for people, we pray for people for that. That's what behind it. It's not our idea. that It's, it's God's knowledge, God's intent, God's very understanding of what is best for you and I. And God wants that for his people. That's what this heart is, that the, he wishes, he, he exclaims, I wish, oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Now, some instructions. Go, verse 30, and say to them, return to your tents. They're, the people are done around the, the mountain for now. Go back to your tents. But you, God, verse 31, speaking to Moses, you stand here by me. And I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. Now, verses 32 and 33, the you there, every you that you see in verses 32 and 33 is plural. He was talking to Moses in verse 31. You, Moses, stand here by me. And I will tell you, Moses, the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you, Moses, shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. But then verse 32, you, that's you, people. So this is the beginning of what he's telling Moses to tell them. You, all of you, shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in on all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live, and then it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you are going to possess. There's three things that the people are to do. Number one, they're to do as the Lord commanded them, verse 32. And then on the opposite side, the end of verse 32, they're not to turn aside. Do everything the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside, the end of the verse, to the right or the left. And lastly, verse 33, you shall walk in all the way. You've seen this in many different places in the New Testament, to walk. Walk in the Spirit, right? Walk by the Spirit. It's an it's a, it's a ongoing, active pursuit. Walk in all the way. Don't just do them and do them. Don't just not turn aside. Do that. Don't turn aside, but walk in all the way. Continue. Make your life in such a way that it's ongoing. You are pursuing this. You are continuing to walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? We have three things in the end of verse 33. Number one, that you may live. (laughs) That's pretty good. That you may live, which, of course, tells you that if you don't, you won't. Right? Right? You might think about Romans 8, when Paul says, if you, uh, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but if you follow the deeds of the flesh, if you follow the flesh, you will die. But if you put those things to death, you will live. If you live by the Spirit, 
right? Life and death. Number one, that you may live. Number two, that it may go well with you. So, not just that you don't die, but that your life might be well, good. Good from God's perspective. Things might go well with you. You might might say, abundant life. And lastly, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now, here's what's interesting. This, is, this connects us into the flow of what's happening in the Bible. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the story of Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham, the promises God made with Abraham, and it's pointing to land and all kinds of blessing and all kinds of promises that has nothing to do uh, with the fact of, of who Abraham is. It's just simply God's uh, good pleasure to call him, to promise him a bunch of stuff, and uh, his obedience starts to become a part of that. But the promises are there, and the promises are made to Abraham and his descendants who these people are. And so, sandwiched in this is all these conditions you, you need to follow the law, you need to obey me, whatever. But what's not up for grabs is, and in those statements, in the land that you shall possess, you're this is happening because I've already promised it. And it has nothing to do, my promise to you as a people has nothing to do with what you're doing. That you shall possess. We heard on Wednesday night, Genesis 22, that God swore by himself that this would take place, that this would happen. That everything that God promised to Abraham and his descendants, it would happen. And of course we know, Paul tells us, that all of that comes to a head in Jesus Christ himself. And so Moses is mediating this, and you read the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, and you see all kinds of other laws laid out for the people. And Moses is the mediator, giving all of this to the people. Hebrews 8, though, we don't have time to go there, but you can refer to that if you'd like. Hebrews 8 talks about the fact that Jesus mediates a better covenant than Moses does. Because we might say, well, these things are all good, and we've said that these things are all good for us. The Ten Commandments are good for us as Christians. It doesn't earn us anything. It simply helps us to live for and please the Lord after we have, through faith, become sons and daughters of God our Father. But what do we do with this? Is, is there something wrong with this? We know the end of the story. We know that Jesus comes to fulfill this because we can't fulfill this. We know that we do not measure up. We've talked about each commandment, how we break it, and how the Lord Jesus has dealt with our breaking of the commandments, every commandment, and all kinds of other commandments. We, talk, we talked about how Jesus dealt with that on the cross. This covenant that's all packed in here, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God is making with the people that's mediated through Moses. This commandment was not meant to do what the new covenant does. The old covenant can't do what the new covenant promises because it's old and new. God's building on that. And so even as we come to the table and uh, here in a bit and remember what the Lord has done, we're remembering the fact that as we Remember, and we take part in this, we remember the fact that we have Jesus who has told us that this is all about this new covenant that the Lord has given. The new covenant gives promises and uh, a path towards life, even in what Pastor read in Romans 3. It gives a path towards life that this does not give. Following the commandments 
gives life in the land for now, but not eternal life. Faith in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, gives us eternal life. So let's just look at a couple places with this whole idea of the heart. I want to run with this theme for just a brief moment. God begins with this idea of, in, in chapter 5, that we just read, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. And we know that that heart is to fear him and to keep his commandments. In chapter 6, in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Packed into fearing him and keeping his commandments, having a heart that God wants, is loving him with all of it. Chapter 6 tells us. We go a few chapters over to Deuteronomy 10. And the Lord issues this command to circumcise their hearts. Which is not something literally that they can do. He's not telling them to rip their chests open and cut a piece of their heart off. There's something spiritual meant by it. We'll just look at verse 16. That's where it says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's not something that they can literally do. They're not going to open their chest, right? As I said. But what's fascinating, this is the first mention of circumcision of the heart. We know what circumcision is otherwise. It's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. right? It has, in that sense, physically, it's not dealing with the heart. But it's meant to show obedience underneath the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is the first mention to circumcise their heart, to cut away part of their hearts. Remember in Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching um, on the day of Pentecost and it says that people, as they're hearing the gospel and the Spirit comes, what are they? They're cut to the heart. That's interesting. They're cut to the heart. And it's the Spirit that does that through the proclamation of the gospel. They're cut to the heart. But God tells them to circumcise their hearts, be no longer stubborn here in the text. Is he issuing something to them that they can't do? Yes. You and I can't circumcise our hearts. Well, that seems unfair. Well, continue to read Deuteronomy. Turn all the way to 29, chapter 29. He's nearing the end of his sermon. After he's finished, and chapters 29 and 30 are really the people then sort of renewing this covenant, reaffirming it. We want to do this. It's the response, if you will, to Moses' sermon. And uh, verses 1 through 3 is just talking about, you've seen everything the Lord did. You've seen all the things the Lord did uh, bringing you out of Egypt up to this point. Verse 4, but to this day... The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Well, that gives us a clue about it's the Lord's work in someone's heart. It's what we prayed yesterday. One of the prayers specifically for someone who was lost was that, Lord, you are the only one who can change a heart. You're the one who does business in our hearts. We can't. 
The Lord has not yet given you a heart to understand. So all that Moses just said, (laughs) to this day the Lord has not yet given you a heart to even understand what I just said. That's what he's saying. Or ears to hear, eyes to see. Skip down to verse 18. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the God of those nations, other nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. Now, there's just a warning here against stubbornness. And also, verse 19, blessing oneself in his heart, saying, I'm okay, I'm safe. Though I'm walking in stubbornness of heart, I'm okay. It's fine. I can go off and run off to other things. I can completely bold-faced disobey the Lord to his face. And God says this curious little phrase, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. What does that mean? It's when the people go after, it's sort of an expression, an old expression. But when the people go after other nations, and they think that when they pursue other nations and the gods of other nations, that they will become prosperous through that, that... They're more well-watered, if you will, uh, through being um, exposed to these other gods. We're well, more well-watered than other people are because we're searching after these other gods who, who promise us good crops and all kinds of provision. And God says, I'm going to sort through all that. You think you're well-watered, I'm going to find you out if you, in the stubbornness of your heart, and I'm going to sort through all your business about thinking that you can go after this, that, and the other, and not me, and I will find that. And I will find you, and I will sort through all of that. And it won't work. It doesn't deliver what it promises. Then verse 30, or uh, chapter 30. There's all kinds of talk about, if you go astray from the Lord, and if you follow this rebellious path, and if you continue in this path, the Lord is going to, going to judge you. There's going to be curses that come from your disobedience to the law, from your disobedience to the covenant. Verse 2. In, in chapter 30, he's talking about when, you remind, when, when all of this happened, when you do turn away, if you do, which he says you will, you need to return to the Lord, verse 2, with your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. With what? All your heart and with all your soul. So God's calling them to respond in a way in which it reminds them back of where he began. So dealing with the matter of the heart. But this is the best part. When all this happens, you need to return to the Lord. He's already told them to circumcise their heart, which they might, as they're thinking about it, listening to the sermon, well, I can't, I can't do that. I can't, I don't know, I, you know. And I'm, I'm, he's already telling me that our people are going to disobey, and in our stubbornness, we're going to run after other things, which, read the Bible, that's what happens. And so what, what, what do we do with that? Verse 6, And the Lord your God, the Lord your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That is a great (laughs) ending to a sermon. Because it's saying, he's already said, you need to do it. And you're going to be stubborn in your hearts, and you're going to run after all kinds of nonsense. It's going to happen. And you read the Bible, it happened. God was right. When you return, the Lord will circumcise your heart. And so that you may love him. 
He's going to do it. That theme has been there all throughout the morning, isn't it? We've been talking about that, singing about that. I'm going to close with Matthew 19. While you're turning there, let me tell you why. See, here's the thing about the law. Some of us here this morning are really good at um, performing, really good at achieving. You give, us, you give you, whoever you are, a list of things to do, you're going to nail it. You're going to get it done perfectly. Boom, 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 boom. You're a doer, right? This is God's word to you this morning. You need God to please God. All of your achievement, all of your ability to check all the boxes on every list that will come at you, doesn't cut it. You need God to please God. Now what about those of us who are like, actually, I'm pretty terrible at doing just about anything. When I hear Romans 3.23, I'm like, yep, I fall short of the glory of God. I'm falling short right now, right? And everything I do just doesn't work, so just, bah, who, I, I can't do it. Here's God's word to you. You get God to please God. He's graciously given you himself so that you may please him. Those of you that are legal, uh, prone to legalism, prone to, I can do it, I can put it on my own back, figure it out, take care of it, you need God to please God. Those of you that, I'm hopeless, I'm a wreck, you get God to please God. That's the point of, in many ways, of what God is saying in Deuteronomy there and leading through that study of the heart. Why Matthew 19? I've touched on this several different times throughout the series and this conversation that Jesus has with the rich young ruler. I don't have time to dig into it all. I just want to make one main comment here. Let me start at verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him, that is to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect or complete or whole, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, all of us that have read this and have a desire to please the Lord, we've wrestled with, does this mean I need to go sell everything? Do I need to do what it says? And I read one guy commenting on this. He said the, uh, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. So immediately as you read that and you think, does this mean I have to do this? And you're looking for a way to understand and legitimize, I don't have to do this because he didn't mean it literally. Maybe it is for you. And maybe it's not possessions. Maybe it's something else. There's a song, there's a lyric in it that just sticks out in my mind all the time. Anything, uh, nothing is worth keeping that keep, that's keeping me from Jesus. Anything that gets in the way of that, that's what Jesus is getting after. But this isn't even so much about, do I need to go be a monk? 
in order to properly follow the Lord and get eternal life? The answer is given at the end of verse 21. If you'd be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus' call is to discipleship to the man. Not go be a monk. His call is to discipleship. And the man has already said, I've kept all the moral commandments. I've checked all the boxes, Lord. But Jesus is saying, yeah, but you need to check the box next to me. You need to put your faith in me. You need to follow me. Your completion, your ability to be perfect and whole and complete is finished in putting your faith in me and coming and following me and setting anything else aside that might impede that. And so this isn't about, do I need to go get rid of all my stuff now and live in a tiny house and be on HGTV? No, this is about, this is about, is my life sold out to Jesus Christ? Never mind about whatever kind of moral achievements I have, religious achievements I have. Is my life focused on Jesus Christ? Because the, the danger of dabbling in the law is we begin to think, I've made it. I've earned this. Look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished. God owes me something. He doesn't owe you anything. But he's given you graciously everything in his son. And so the, the law leads us to Christ in so many different directions. Yes, it shows us our need for Christ. Yes, it shows us our sin. Yes, it shows us how far we are separated from God. But it also shows that we need God to please God. If you forget everything else I say, remember that. You need God to please God. God calls us to a life, to walk with him. Doesn't call us to a list of achievements or rules or check these boxes, calls us to himself and a life. When Jesus sits with his disciples just before he's about to be given over to be killed, he says this in John 14 Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going, Thomas said. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's a wonderful thing about our Lord is that he has... (laughs) We, we can come to an end of ourselves in understanding what God expects, what he requires, what he desires, what his standard is. And rather than the Lord, um, just think of this scene. He's sitting at the table with his disciples. And he's given us this repeatable thing that reminds us of what he's done. Rather than the Lord beating us over the head with, you don't measure up. Do you know what you've done? Do you know what you've been missing? Do you know what you've not done? You know what you've not? He says, come, come to my table. Let's have a meal. Let's remember. You remember. Remember what I've done. And I often think about, I, I wonder if the disciples ever thought about, remember looking in Jesus' eyes when we sat with him that last night at the table? Remember what he said? Remember how he was looking at us? How he was speaking to us? I wonder if 
John on Patmos was, start, was remembering, because he saw different eyes later from Jesus. But I wonder if he was thinking about, when I looked into his eyes, what he said, and he called us to come to this table. What a, what a gracious, merciful God we have. That this is how he calls his children. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we have. We have an open communion table here at this church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate. The men can come forward as we get prepared here. But we're, what we're going to do is pass around the elements and we will take part in them together. So hold on to them and we'll take part in them together. But let, us, let me remind us of what took place later on. And Paul reminds us of this. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And he took also the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you will in remembrance of me. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is a wonderful grace that we proclaim to one another what the Lord has done as we remember. We remember what the Lord has done, but we proclaim to one another what the Lord has done. And this is his grace given to his body, to his church, that we might be fed, if you will, in this way, feeding on the gospel, feeding on the truth of what Jesus has done. But Paul also warns in 1 Corinthians 11, do not eat the bread and drink the cup without examining yourself. And so I'll merely say that to you as an admonition from the Lord. Examine yourself. I'm going to pray briefly and just allow some time for you to do that, and then we will begin. Let's pray. God, as we come to your table, we come in response, we come thankful. We come humble. Lord, thank you for this gracious gift of participating in this meal together with your body. For all of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, Lord, what a gracious thing you've done to allow us to participate in this. We remember what you've done for us. We proclaim to one another and to ourselves what you've done for us. Search our hearts, Lord. May we prepare ourselves in a way that pleases you. Thank you for your word that we've heard. And may we use this time now of communion to respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.